Tracked and Traced is sponsored by the Pulitzer Center. The Pulitzer Center raises awareness of underreported global issues by supporting quality journalism across all media platforms with a unique program of education and public outreach. Learn more at pulitzercenter.org. Hi, uh, my name is Ali. I'm working on a podcast for the MSU Museum. Would you mind answering a few questions? Sure. So, what do you think about police officers having access to live feeds and cameras uh, in high schools? In high schools? Um, I don't know. I think I went to a high school that definitely had that, and I was in favor of it for our security because it was a pretty large school. I think it sort of depends on where in the country you are and what sort of the situation is. But in general, I think I'm in favor of it. I think that police officers having access to what's happening in schools is very important because it puts the pressure off of the school system itself and the teachers themselves and onto the police officers. Yeah, that could be potentially very problematic. I don't know how that would work. How do you think that would be problematic? I don't know. I just, that seems like a little extra to me. I don't know. Oh, um, honestly, I think it's actually very much needed. Um, it actually could prevent a lot of things going on, and they could be there a lot faster if they know what's going on. Instead of getting a phone call saying, like, come help us now, if they saw the footage maybe 10 minutes before, they could be there to stop a lot more problems. But, yeah. Uh, do you think that's going to have a long-term effect on preventing crime? I think it's going to give more people jobs and things to do, but now you need the funds for those things. So I think if they're able to implement it, it could be long-term, but I don't know if those funds would be there for long-term. So it all depends on money, I guess. That's how things work, I guess. Well, I feel like since there are so many like um, school shootings, they should have recordings from the high schools to like, you know, know what's going on in high schools, which is like, I think it's important. Um, how do you think uh, that might help prevent uh, future events of cold shooting, for example? I mean, it might be like, it might scare the kids. Like, it might be um, like a, just, I don't know how to say this, but like, it might stop them just to say that, yeah, we're looking, we're seeing what you're doing. It might stop them in the future, maybe, hopefully, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feeds from cameras in high schools. Uh, if there's a situation like a school shooter, for example, then I can completely understand giving them access to it. But if it's just like small schoolyard stuff, like just a fight breaks out between two kids, they're both sent off, then I think that's dealt by the school, so the police shouldn't have access to that. Hey everyone, I'm Antoine Scott, and this is Tracked and Traced, a podcast about surveillance technology and how it affects you. Today we're talking about surveillance and education. We'll hear from Eleanor Katolico, who looked into a new agreement between the schools and police department in Dearborn, Michigan. Dearborn schools recently agreed to share a 24-7 video feed with some of its schools with Dearborn police. Eleanor looks into how the technology is going to be used, what safeguards might be in place to prevent abuse, and how overall increase in surveillance might affect students. Later on, we'll talk to Chris Gillier and look into another aspect of surveillance and education. We're talking about digital proctoring and the remote surveillance of students. But first, here's Eleanor Katolico reporting from Dearborn, Michigan. 
Parkland. The 2018 mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School claimed the lives of 17 people and traumatized thousands more. Three years later, that tragedy still haunts Dearborn Public School Superintendent Glenn Maleko. My biggest nightmare is the potential for an active shooter situation. Maleko is speaking to members of the Dearborn City Council. The meeting has a thin crowd of in-person attendees. The scene has all the aesthetic trappings of local government. Four flags stand behind the seven council members. A golden emblem featuring a car is mounted on the wall, commemorating the city's ties to Ford Motor Company, which is headquartered here. The auto industry has drawn immigrants from all over the world, including countries like Lebanon, Iraq, and Syria, since the early 1900s. Today, Dearborn is known as the city with the highest concentration of Arab Americans in the United States. This evening, Superintendent Maleko is encouraging council members to adopt an agreement that could help the school system better protect its students and staff. The district has security cameras in many places in its high schools, not in classrooms, but in cafeterias, hallways, and other common spaces. Under a new agreement, the local police will have live access to these video feeds to help officers respond to threats of mass harm, like a school shooting, more quickly and efficiently. But the district's argument failed to sway some residents. During the public comment period, a few shared their grievances. Leonard Wright moves toward the microphone and casts doubt on the plan. Technology is a, a great thing, but everybody sitting up here recognized that it has been used for nefarious means. Daniel Domitar takes his turn. He questions whether the agreement could be effective in stopping a tragedy at all. I would like to hear a, like a real-life scenario where what they're asking for is actually going to help because based on what we know from previous shootings, it happens fast. It, by the time they figure it out, it's too late. The damage is done. How is this going to prevent that? If it doesn't prevent, how is that going to help anything? But Superintendent Maleko says too much is at stake if they fail to prepare. I do not want to be here down the line to say only if we use the technology that we had that could have saved the life of a child. After about an hour of discussion, council members unanimously approved the agreement between the schools and the police. Dearborn Public Schools and districts across the nation are facing increasing pressure to keep students and staff safe. Last year was marked by tragedy and trauma. School shootings were on the rise. There were 34 shootings at K-12 schools, according to an Education Week analysis. In 2020, there were 10. In 2019 and 2018, there were 24. Experts stress that school shootings remain statistically rare. But Dearborn Public Schools, which serves over 20,000 students, is preparing for these worst-case scenarios. When crises evolve in real time, like an active shooter situation or a medical emergency. Seconds count, 100%. That's John Leacher, the district's health, safety, and security supervisor. Before working in Dearborn, he was the police chief in Flat Rock, Michigan. He's one of the administrators who will oversee how the live camera footage will be monitored. With quick access to video feeds, officers responding to the situation would have a better chance of knowing exactly where an emergency is happening. This is to prepare us in case of what we hope never happens, right? The, the ultimate worst possible case scenario. Some of the district's buildings, especially its high schools, are massive, making a tactical response even more challenging. Leacher says that's why the agreement between Dearborn Public Schools and the police department is important. Well, this, what we've got implemented here is the ability to possibly potentially know where a potential shooter is immediately um, as, the, as the emergency is unfolding. Dearborn and many other Michigan districts are part of the country's evolving school surveillance landscape. The use of video surveillance systems in schools is not new. Most K-12 districts have some type of camera system monitoring spaces inside buildings. 
Generally, they exist to secure school campuses but also deter bad behavior. And at least three states have passed laws to allow districts to install video cameras in special education settings to protect students from potential abuse or clear a teacher's name if accused of inappropriate conduct. Fourth Amendment rights protect people from unreasonable searches and seizures. But some legal scholars have pointed out that these protections have declined for students over the last three decades. A series of Supreme Court rulings gave school officials more power to enforce orderly and safe environments, which paved the way for more heightened school surveillance systems. Otis Johnson Jr. is the executive director of the Johns Hopkins University Center for Safe and Healthy Schools. He says surveillance these days extends beyond video. We're also seeing now the introduction of AI and facial recognition technologies, and um, they're now building school buildings with holes above the door so that drones can fly in. And when students began learning virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic, more digital surveillance came with it. Some districts hired third-party companies to monitor student email accounts or social media activity, or purchase software that tries to detect cheating. But the question is, with all of these sophisticated technologies, has surveillance actually been effective in stopping a school shooting? Johnson Jr. says no. We have no evidence that the inclusion of SROs or video footage has somehow made um, these shootings less likely. SROs are school resource officers, which are basically police officers assigned to schools. In fact, Johnson Jr. says over the sounds of some rustling paper that current studies, including his own research, reveal something else. These systems often disproportionately harm students of color. We do know that the presence of these technologies do in fact relate to higher suspension rates, higher um, exclusionary discipline, and higher um, referral rates to authority. It really does impact um, kids' perspectives about schools, whether they're safe, um, whether they're themselves perceived as suspects when they come to school. Um, those things then relate to feelings of school connectedness, belongingness, uh, trust. Some Dearborn activists have been critical of the district's agreement because they worry the cameras will be used to prosecute black and brown students. Alexandra Hughes is an activist with accountability for Dearborn. Hughes tells me school surveillance creates a climate of fear. In school, you're there to learn and, you know, uh, make friends and to grow up and learn different lessons and to develop. In schools, they shouldn't have to worry about being arrested. And, um, you know, that's a bit concerning because this is children. These are people who are just trying to become their best version of themselves. David Mustanen is the communications director for Dearborn Public Schools. He rejects claims that the technology will be used to target and discriminate against students. It really insults me to think that somebody dares, says that this district and all that we are doing and all that we have done throughout the years and the number of resources that we put forth to make sure that students are successful with a 95% graduation rate in this district, that someone would insinuate that we are here to put kids in prison. I, I'm incensed by that. Mm -hmm. I'm infuriated by that. Well, and I'm offended by it. Mm -hmm. Because that is not what we as educational professionals are here to do, and that's not what we do in Dearborn. Abbas Wozni is a sophomore at Fordson High School in Dearborn. He says many of his classmates aren't aware of the district's agreement with the local police. 
and he has mixed feelings on the situation. District officials maintain that the police department will only view the live video streams during emergencies. On the one hand, Wozni says it is the police's job to keep students safe, and it doesn't bother him if he and his classmates are monitored in the event of a real threat. But he says all the surveillance still makes him feel uncomfortable. And it's weird because, like, since when school's supposed to be a safe place, you know, where I can express myself, but now they're watching us and they're being able to listen to us wherever we are. Dearborn residents have a reason to be skeptical of being watched. Following the 9-11 attacks, Arab and Muslim families in the city became a target for government surveillance and humiliating harassment, all in the name of national security. I think a school setting should be a safe setting for parents, students, families to enter without the worry of, am I being recorded right now? Who is seeing this? That's Zainab Fahas the Safe Spaces Director at Michigan's chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Faha says more surveillance could further erode community trust in Dearborn, where some families are recent immigrants. So for them to be walking into a school and unaware of whether or not their whereabouts are being recorded, filmed, shared with other local or federal law enforcement agencies is extremely problematic um, to the Dearborn community. The district says, however, it's not implementing this agreement in order to identify students' residency status. And student information is protected by the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, also known as FERPA. But there could be exceptions. Law enforcement officials have the right to obtain student information as part of an investigation, but only when going through the legal system and providing court documents. Despite the city's painful history and the distress that comes with it, Dearborn district officials, activists, parents, and students have found some common ground, addressing the growing mental health needs and challenges of students. To that end, the district has hired more social workers in recent years and is working to promote mental health and wellness across its schools. Two months after the city council meeting in Dearborn, tragedy struck 35 miles away. The city of Oxford, Michigan, suffered immeasurable grief and loss when a 15-year-old sophomore allegedly opened fire at Oxford High School, killing four students. The suspect has since been charged as an adult and is facing 24 counts, including first-degree murder and terrorism. His parents have also been charged with involuntary manslaughter. This is an American high school in Michigan that is a crime scene. That's footage of Paula Tutman, a local news reporter from WDIV recorded on the scene at Oxford High School the day of the shooting. Now, there's some important evidence inside because this is a school that was also well-equipped with surveillance video. And what the undersheriff told us is that they will be going over this video, but it is very likely that from start to finish, they will be able to see what happens. All we can do is hope and pray that there are no more fatalities. But as we end this evening tonight, this is what we take home. This is not an Oxford tragedy. This is a community, a Michigan, and a nationwide tragedy. Oxford ignited another reckoning about how to keep students and staff safe in schools. In the days following, a cascade of copycat threats befell school districts across Michigan. Dozens of schools briefly shut their doors out of an abundance of caution. School safety grants are once again available to districts that want to ramp up their security efforts, which could mean even more school surveillance. 
in Dearborn right now, video cameras are limited to high schools. But with more funding, some officials say they would expand to every school, including elementary, because that would make the district a safer place. That was Eleanor Katolico reporting. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. Now we're going to look into another kind of surveillance in education. That is technology used to monitor students during testing or virtual learning. To do that, we called up Chris Gilliard. Chris is a professor at Macomb Community College and has written about surveillance in education for a number of outlets, including The Washington Post and Wired. You can catch him tweeting from Hypervisible. So, Chris, thank you for joining us today on the Attract and Trace podcast. In today's episode, we're looking at surveillance in education. And as the COVID era has, you know, ushered in more awareness of this technology and like, you know, its connection to students as like, you know, a lot of education has been taking place in the home. Would you mind sharing with us just a bit of history of like, you know, the past 10 years of like surveillance and student education? (laughs) Well, I mean, I can't do that justice in an hour. I mean, because it's a lot. So I'll speak to the one that, that you mentioned, which is remote proctoring. So that's one of the things that's really taken off uh, since the pandemic. Now, these systems existed before, but basically they're an effort to mimic the the conditions under which students would take a test where they in person, right? So the idea is that there's someone, you know, in person, there's often someone who either stands up at the front of the room or walks around the room in an effort to curtail what they think might be cheating and uh, maximize the honesty of the student. Like, that's not how I think of it, but that's, that's generally like how it's understood. So since the pandemic, you know, as many people move work and school to home, there's been a, a huge uptick in the use of these services, which in some way or another use cameras in order to gauge people's uh, faces. Sometimes they use eye detection. There's room scans there is uh, sometimes noises can be understood as cheating. Sometimes whether or not someone is in the background, that can be flagged. So what all of these systems do, so there's a variety of companies that do this. I am not going to name any of them in particular because as it turns out, they're very litigious and they often come after critics. And so I'm not going to name any of the companies specifically, but uh, there are a variety of these systems And essentially what they do is some form of tracking students and tracking the audio of people. Again, as I mentioned, sometimes eye detection in an effort to do what they call, to maintain what they call academic integrity. And again, I say what they call because we can get into this, but I I don't think that's what it does. And curtail cheating. And a lot of institutions, K through 12, but also college, even law schools, have embraced this technology since the pandemic. Uh, despite the fact that there are numerous reports on record of this technology discriminating against black and brown people because of the ways that facial detection and facial recognition works, the ways that the tech is ableist 
in that it tracks eye movement, the ways that it discriminates against people who may, for one reason or another, not be able to sit still or in one place for extended periods of time, and the way it discriminates based on class. So it makes assumptions about who has what kind of internet, who has a, a, a quiet space without any form of interruption, and, and on and on and on, right? And, the, the, and also there's an assumption that the institution, and by extension, some third party, and whoever else they sell that data to or give that data to or show that data to, has the right to intrude into a person's space simply because they want to engage in the process of learning. So this is a super brief rundown. I'm happy to expand on any of those things or talk about any other variety of, of the ed tech surveillance that's existed in the past. Uh, yeah, years. absolutely. No, no, thank you for sharing that. It, it, it really does help, you know, shape the understanding of like, you know, how the technology is being used, well, camera-based technologies are being used. And, you know, it seems that there has been an uptick in like anxiety and like, you know, mental health issues connected to this type of like education surveillance. Could you talk a little bit more about like that? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the anxiety angle because that's one thing I didn't even mention. Again, there's numerous reports. There's it's on social media. It's been reported by by Vice, by Washington Post, by New York Times, by the Chronicle of Higher Ed, Inside Higher Ed, of students who have had to undergo a variety of extreme measures to just to take a test. So, for instance, black and brown students often have to shine bright lights in their face for extended periods of time while they're taking a test. Again, uh, any noise in the background, any movement, sometimes these systems use AI to flag people. So anything that is understood by the AI, and again, we could get into that if you want to, but anything that is understood by the AI as abnormal, and, and again, that is their word. So I have a problem with this word, but I'm that is their word. Anything that is used uh, understood by the AI as abnormal can be flagged as suspicion of cheating. And so as you can imagine, I mean, I don't have a space entirely free of noise and I'm an adult professional. You know, I I think most of us don't, and particularly during the pandemic, most of us don't because many people were doing many things out of their home. Uh, We have pets, we have children, we have neighbors. I mean, all these things. And so the idea that any of that could put you, uh, get you flagged as potentially being a cheater produces a massive amount of anxiety. And again, these are measures that people should not have to undergo just to, just to participate in learning. And one of the things I want to stress, I should have said from the outset, is there is no independent research that says that these systems actually work. The main claims about their efficacy come from the people who sell and the companies who sell them. And so, I mean, you said that you're familiar with some of the stuff on social media. So you've probably seen the variety of videos about how to circumvent these systems. You know, I think also pedagogically, there's a problem when we start out with the assumption that students are inherently dishonest, that they're grifters, that they're cheaters, that their initial plan is to kind of get one over on people, right? I think that's the wrong way to approach learning pedagogically. Uh, and I think it produces all kinds of negative outcomes. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that perspective. But 
you know, on the counter of that, it seems though the advertisements and a lot of the literature in which those companies, not to be named <laughs> today, um, you know, really that they use, it seems as though it is really highlighting things that we know are true, that educators are overworked and really tired, especially in the public school sector, and that there should be some additional aid. And for many school districts, they see this, you know, as a as a way to aid their struggling teachers with the classroom support that is, you know, absolutely needed. So what do we do with this emergence of technology and that is coupled with like, you know, teacher burnout? Yeah. Well, there, there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, you know, to, to refer to a previous point, these systems do not work. <laughs> and second of all, they discriminate, okay? And so my, my stance, and, and I'll, I'll answer your question, but my stance right, is if we can't, if we have a system that is the illusion of being, of working, and it also discriminates against large swaths of the population, that we shouldn't use it. So if you can't have, uh, for instance, a, a, a proctoring system, that doesn't discriminate against disabled people, that doesn't involve forced disclosure of, of disabilities, that doesn't recognize black and brown people as human often. That's where we start, right? Like if we want to have a, a functioning and equitable education system, we have to start with recognizing people as human and including them in these systems. If we can't have that, then we can't have any other conversation. I mean, I've been teaching for a long, long time and I, and I understand some of the things that you're speaking to. And one of the things that these systems do is they are put in place because institutions don't want to have some of these larger conversations that will require investment of time and money and institutional will. Uh, and, but often, I mean, some of these systems are very expensive, for instance. So if you want to talk teacher burnout, instead of spending $500,000 for a remote proctoring system for a year. I mean, there are lots of other places that money could go to. So it will require different kinds of conversations and a, a degree of will that often is not is lacking in our educational systems. But again, they actually don't work. So, I mean, we need to start from there. They don't work and they're often discriminatory against some of the most marginalized students in our population. And so we can't really have any other conversation. To me, we can't really have any other conversation until we talk about that. Like you've mentioned several times, you know, the harms of surveillance falling upon the most marginalized populations. And it seems as though thinking about Detroit and its surrounding areas and the implementation of like surveillance technologies across the board that there has not really been any significant shifts in like what safety means to citizens. And prior to, I guess, this heavily surveilled state, and, you know, as a former student in Detroit, you know, I remember the feeling of school already being heavily policed. And I wonder, putting myself into that position 20 years later, what does it mean to really 
step into a space where I know that like, you know, there's an eye in the sky on me and the instructor already, you know, sees me as argumentative and, you know, or defensive or just a problem, you know, when it's the same things that all teenagers are going through, like, you know, but it looks different because I'm in my body. Exactly. You know, exactly. And and it's really hard to think about like how to deal with that. And you know, I, I just wonder as an educator, what measures are you taking? What types of conversations are educators having with each other about this? I mean, there are there's vibrant communities uh, all throughout education. You know, from K through twelve all the way through through law school, as I mentioned about these subjects. If I would extend some some goodwill to people who advocate surveillance, I mean, I do think that often what people are interested in is the safety of young people. There's some very different ideas about how to achieve that. And so I think there are a lot of these conversations going on, but it's very difficult for a couple reasons. It's a delicate subject about which there are there seem to be, in this country at least, not the answers people want to hear. And the other thing is that when we think about safety, we want, we want to think about safety for whom, right? Um, and so, you, as you mentioned, your own experiences in, in school, when we think about safe, school being safe, we want to think of it also as a, a place where people feel safe to be who they are, right? To explore ideas, um, to not feel that there will be repercussions based on the conversation they had or a mistake, not a mistake they made when they were a child. They want to feel safe to explore their identity in all the different ways that we understand that. And so a lot of times surveillance is not just going to capture, you know, the, the person who's bullying someone. It's going to capture conversations that people have that they might not want to be having at home, right? Because it's not safe for them to have them at home. And again, these are, there's lots of legitimate conversations you have, you know, so children, and young people deserve privacy. There's lots of legitimate conversations you have. Uh, so I'm not talking about anything outrageous or illegitimate. There's lots of conversations that young people have they want to keep between themselves or among themselves, and they should have that right. And so a thing that cameras and microphones everywhere uh, can do and, do and currently does is often strip people of that right and that ability. Because that, that youth and that space is very formative I think it's very dangerous and not good for society to do that to children. I think it's not good to do to anyone. There are some specific reasons why it's not good to do to children. Yeah, absolutely. I had a friend tell me a story just last week about, you know, they're back in school and, of course, taking their college classes virtually now. And they were assigned to revise their own work. And so they're collaborating with themselves. (laughs) And so their revised paper was sent back with 100% plagiarized. Oh, gosh. And they were really having a hard time getting their professor to, like, understand that, like, the paper that it is citing is my same paper. Mm -hmm. And if you, like, just look at it, like, a little further, you could see it's just my paper. So there's no way that I plagiarize. And so, like, you know, there's, like, you know, functions of these systems and then people who are relying on them. It just seems like, you know, there's a lot of, like, speed bumps ahead. What do you have to say (laughs) 
to the future student, the current student, for them to stay steadfast in this experience or perhaps learn how to move around it? Yeah. So uh, that's a great question. I think one of the amazing things I've seen in the past couple of years is the ways in which students have been often at the forefront of pushing back against these technologies, whether that's pandemic surveillance, whether that's remote proctoring, whether that's plagiarism, you know, in, in quotation marks, plagiarism detection. Often students have a greater lever for pushing back against these things than even instructors do because administrations often think of students as customers and unhappy customers equal people who are not going to return, be returned customers. So there are in some ways that students have the ability, especially and particularly when they band together, to push back and resist these things. And we've seen a lot of that um, because I think people are becoming much more aware of the extent to which surveillance and algorithmic judgment right, through artificial intelligence and machine learning touches every aspect of our lives, makes judgments and assessments about us that we often don't have the ability to push back on or question. And as more people see that, and not even people, and so what, one of the things I would say to them is that you don't have to be an expert in these systems to understand how these systems affect your life, right? Because you are an expert on your own experience and the degree to which these things are deployed against you. That's a, a thing I think people can find some solace in. And I mean, I, yeah, I've seen so much of that just in the past three or four years. Okay, that does it for us today. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Tracked and Traced. Tracked and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced by David Lyons with reporting from Eleanor Catolico and editing by David Lyons, Laura Herberg, and David Weinberg. With Vox Pops from the Science Gallery Mediator Team, Harrison Adams, Aliamel Avila Sanchez, and Caroline White. With mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU's Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station. With support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU, FCU.